0: All right, this morning, we are gonna be taking a break from Luke's gospel, and I'll be preaching a topical sermon on the subject of church attendance. Um, The elders have been wrestling with this particular question increasingly since the pandemic as our rhythms of worshiping and gathering together have been disrupted. And they asked me to preach this particular sermon, uh, this moment in our church's uh, ministry together. Um, We'll be back to Luke uh, after Easter, but uh, before we turn our attention to Hebrews 10, 23 through 25, let's begin with a a word of prayer. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word that speaks to every level of our heart and soul. I uh, thank you for the way that it tells us so clearly that our salvation does not rest upon our obedience, uh, but on the obedience of your son. I uh, thank you that it also teaches us that when he commands us to do something, his commandments are not burdensome, uh, but they are for our good and out of love that, from our savior to us. So this morning, would you help us to think rightly, even as what the the word says, as it relates to our gathering together. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Our passage this morning, uh, the main one anyway, will be Hebrews 10. I'm going to read verses 23 through 25, so you get a little bit of the context, but we're going to mainly spend time on 24 and 25. Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 23. This is what scripture says. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You are edgy, uh, in fact, you are countercultural. You are swimming upstream, did you know that? How can I say that, about each and every one of you here today? Well, because you're here in this room and because I heard you sing these words. Oh, how good it is on this journey we share to rejoice with the happy and weep with those who mourn, for the weak find strength and the afflicted find grace as we offer the blessing of belonging. Uh, Did you know that to believe that is to put yourself in a distinct minority in the day and time we live? I did some statistical research this week looking at Gallup and Barna Poles. We have crossed that magical threshold in the United States. Less than 50% of people uh, count themselves as practicing Christians. That's not a good sign. Uh, Also not a good sign is even a smaller percentage actually come to church on a given Sunday. Seems as if the motto is that even among people who profess as Christians, for some, I love Jesus, but not the church. Uh, When you dig into the statistics, about 25% of self-professing Christians don't see any reason that they need to go to church on a given Sunday. They never attend church. Uh, But before you pat yourself on the back, knowing that you had to get up and get dressed and get here, and that means that you're in the minority, realize that even those of us who show up to church on a Sunday have something that's sliding in the statistics about us. Uh, 75% of Christians come to church at least once a month, but only 35% of them say that coming to church is an important part of being a Christian. Which means 40% of us in this room might not know why we're here. (laughs) Well, my hope is by the end of this sermon that each of us will be convinced that gathering with God's people is not an extra. It is essential to a healthy relationship with Christ. That we would see that Christ's command to meet together is given to us for our good and his glory and we must obey it. Uh, we'll see that by answering four questions. The first of which, where does it say I have to go to church? Where does it say I have to go to church? I mean, let's be honest, I'm a preacher. I have a bit of a vested interest in people coming to church. So where does it actually say it? Well, the verses that I read this morning, uh, verse 25 particularly, is the direct, one direct spot in scripture that shows that we are obligated to gather together as a part of a local church. Let me read it again. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, I know that's actually just half of a verse, so let me give you a little bit of context of what's going on around this. Uh, This is part of the book of Hebrews, which is really a letter that is a sermon sent to a particular church made up of Jewish Christians who are dealing with a really difficult problem. Uh, They had left Judaism to become Christians and they were increasingly paying a price for it. It hadn't yet gotten to the point where any of them were getting killed, but they were having their property taken from them. They might even get a black eye on their way to church. They were starting to pay a cost for associating with Christ. So some of them were tempted to find their way out the back door of the church and find their way back to the temple and to their old way of worshiping. In so doing, they would avoid all the nasty business of those who wanted to give them a black eye. So this letter, which is a sermon, was written to convince them there's no going back uh, because Jesus is so much greater than the old ways of worshiping. Uh, he's greater than Moses and greater than the tabernacle and the temple. He's greater than the sacrifices offered up within. And even the priests, all of them are just a shadow of the true thing that is Jesus Christ. So you can't go back. Because if you go back, that would mean abandoning Christ. So that's the context of the command is to a group of people that have a very good reason to find a reason not to show up to church. They might get punched in the face on the way. And yet, it is straightforward. We're told that they're not to neglect meeting together. Now, some would like for that meeting together to just be any group of Christians getting together. But my study this week, I discovered uh, that meeting together word is episynagoge. Um, you can hear the word synagogue right in that compound word. And to someone who just came out of Ju- Judaism, synagogue would have a very plain meeting. Uh, that was the local place where a faithful Jew went to worship each and every Sabbath. Uh, they did pretty much what you would expect to find at a local church worship service. They read from scripture and had it taught. They prayed prayers together. Um, they, they had times of uh, fellowship together. Uh, a synagogue was the local church before the church came around. So to someone sitting in that particular context, this command would have been absolutely unmistakable. Uh, this week I read uh, an unusual number of commentaries just to make sure I got this point right. Every single one of them said the same thing. This is a command for Christians to attend a local church. So there's the verse, okay? It says it in the Bible, sermon over. Uh, of course not, there's, there's more to be said. Uh, because not only do we see the direct command, there's actually a number of indirect inferences that can be drawn from the way churches are talked about throughout your Bible. Uh, there's a number of extended metaphors that are used to describe what happens when Christians gather together. Uh, One of the more famous ones is in 1 Corinthians 12. It is that of one body with a whole bunch of different parts. You've got eyes and ears and hands and feet. And none of them on their own are sufficient to be able to be healthy and survive spiritually. No, only together do they make up the body of Christ. So you can't chop off one section of the Christian community and expect that Section that's been lumbotomized to uh, survive, nor can you expect the whole body not to suffer. Everything, everything is meant to fit together. Uh, there's a second image. Uh, that one you can find in 1 Peter 2. Uh, that's of a building that's being put together by individual stones. Uh, Those stones on their own don't accomplish much, but when they are brought together by the power of God as a local church, they become the place where God is able to be worshipped and to dwell. Uh, There's a third image, 1 Timothy 3. It's of a household, of a family, a father and a mother and children all living together in the bonds of blood. Well, that's an analogy for a local church. We are together whether we like it or not. Now, I think the most telling of all comes from the book of Acts. If you have time, I encourage you to, to walk through the book of Acts and look at the way that the Christian community develops. The gospel's preached, uh, people respond in faith and repentance, and then the Lord saves people and they are added to the number of what? of to the church. Individual churches, everywhere it spreads, churches are found with elders and leaders and members brought together. Now, all of it undoubtedly teaches this basic truth. We need each other and we are meant to gather together. Uh, The Bible teaches it. There's a direct command as well as a whole number of inferences. So what does the Bible say it? Well, there you go. Hebrews 10, 25, as well as a number of other passages. But I don't know about you. I'm helped not just with the raw authority of, okay, you got to do that. If God said it once, we're still bound to obey it. But it's much easier and more fruitful when you know the reasons behind why God said it. And thankfully, we have those as well. That brings us to the second set of questions. Why does it say, I must go to church? What purpose does God have in gathering a people together Sunday after Sunday for worship and fellowship and taking of the sacraments? Well, the, that two verses, Hebrews 10, 24, and 25, have three reasons for, that uh, we are to go to church. Uh, the first is that you, so you won't abandon Christ. See that in Verse 25. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. Uh, that word for neglect is the same word in Greek that's used for forsake or abandon. Uh, remember that theme I told you was running through Hebrews? What was the thing they were facing? That temptation to abandon the community of Christ and thereby abandon Jesus altogether as well. Uh, if you think I might be overreading this, Look just down the page, literally the next section after this, verses 26 and on, I'm going to read from verse 27. All that remains, uh, uh, but the only thing that remains is a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. It's one of those warning passages immediately after this. Now, if you stop and you think about why this is the case, it really isn't all that shocking. Experience tells us that when people stop attending church, they are far more prone to walk away from Christ as well. Uh, I'm not making that up. Back through church history, we've got 2,000 years of it at this point. Um, You can go back to the fourth century, to Augustine. And he writes about this very thing. He says, the deserter of the church cannot be in Christ since he's not among Christ's members. You can find examples of church fathers all the way from the 4th century through the Reformation that have noticed this same trend. When when people are going to walk away from Christ, there's a leading indicator. They start avoiding church gatherings before they walk away. Now, if you think about it from a positive sense, it becomes obvious why. What is it that Jesus uses our gatherings to do within our hearts and our souls? Uh, Think about what happens when you come on a Sunday. Uh, You come to church and you hear the word of God preached. And whether you you knew it or not, your heart needed this correction from the very words of God. From all the false things you've absorbed throughout the week. In that moment, conscious or not, your heart recalibrates. Uh, Maybe you find yourself in a particularly dry season, struggling for joy in your walk. But you show up to church anyway. And the joyful, exuberant worship of the people around you, it it lifts your soul in a way you never expected. That's Christ giving you grace so that you would remain faithful. Or maybe it's the testimony of someone that is shared in that church service. You didn't know that you had something that resonated with their life until the moment they got up and spoke. But once you've heard it, you knew unmistakably God is in this place. Or, Or what about those little conversations that happen after church is over, after the service is done, before you leave, someone comes along and has a word of encouragement or even a word of correction and you didn't know you needed it until you received it. See, church itself is what theologians call a means of grace. It is the normal way Jesus provides us with everything he purchased on the cross. It doesn't earn anything before God. But it's the regular way he feeds our soul and builds us up and keeps us from abandoning him under the pressures of this world. Which means that if we find ourselves or see someone else beginning to not gather together, not come to church, we have reason to worry. Um, Came across a wonderful illustration from Josh Moody about this using the one body, many parts metaphor. He said, imagine you're walking down the street on the sidewalk and you look off into the grass and what do you see? The oddest sight, you see a severed hand laying in the grass. Now, maybe you're a little squeamish, uh, but one thought that none of us would have is, wow, that is a very healthy hand. Uh, Why? Because whether you're a doctor or not, you know that hands are supposed to be connected to wrists, which are supposed to be connected to arms, which are supposed to be connected to circulatory systems. And then a hand cut off from all those things, while it may be alive for a little while, unless a skilled surgeon's right around the corner, it's not going to be for long. So we have a warning as well as an encouragement here to realize that we are no spiritual exception, if we cut ourselves off from the regular means of grace, of how Jesus keeps us close to him, we too could one day abandon Christ. So why do you come to church? For your sake, for your own soul's sake, so you wouldn't abandon him. Second, uh, not just for you, but for us. Uh, Because we're not just supposed to be spectators, but participants as well two reasons, so that you can agitate others. Uh, Did you know that you're supposed to come to church and stir something up? It says so right there. It says uh, verse 24, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Now, that doesn't mean to be rude or provocative, but it implies that you have a purpose for coming to church beyond just your preferences. You're supposed to come to draw out something among your brothers and sisters, something that if you weren't there would not be drawn out. Love and good works. Did you know each and every time you come to church, you have a ministry to undertake? Uh, Your job is to, in some way, be of spiritual benefit to the people that are gathered with you, as odd as that assortment might be. Now, how does that happen? Oh, maybe it's from some of the things we already described uh, maybe it's you yourself being bold and unashamed during our uh, worship through singing, raising your hands or swaying your hips, making it okay for people to do the same thing around you. Uh, or maybe it's an opportunity after the service to pray directly for someone who happened to sit right in front of you. It turned out they were in bad, badly in need of someone to help bear their burden that week. Uh, or maybe it's something that happens during a sermon like this one. You shout out amen at a particularly good point. That's okay, by the way. <laughs> and in so doing, people know that someone's listening and that God's word is having effect among us. Uh, in all of this, the idea is that church isn't just a you thing. It's an us thing. Uh, we gather with purpose. Uh, there's a reason that we are to be here. It's just Draw things out of each other, to stir it up, agitate each other, so that we might see Christ at work among us in a way that we wouldn't otherwise. There's a third thing that needs to happen, and that is so that we can anticipate together. That we can anticipate together. That's what we see in verse 25, second half not neglecting to meet uh, meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Someone sent me a sermon this week that described each church gathering like the ticking of a clock, counting down the moments until Christ returns. And none of us knows precisely when Jesus will come back. No one but the Father knows that for sure. But what we do know, each and every time we gather, is that we are one Sunday closer to that return. And in a sense, then, as we gather through faith, we gain the ability to hear the tick and the talk of that heavenly clock until our Lord Jesus returns. And so we anticipate together. We sing songs about it. We read scriptures about it. We help each other to recalibrate and remember that there's a day coming when we'll see Jesus shining brighter than the sun. That there's a day coming when we will join our local church to the great heavenly assembly of the universal church down through all the ages. There's a day coming when our joy and our fellowship will be full because it'll be free from sin and full of the very glory of God. And each and every Sunday where we gather We recalibrate our hearts to that reality. This life is oh so short compared to that wonderful eternity that we will share with Jesus. You need to come to church so that your heart can be reminded of that and not get so caught up in the moment that you miss the big thing that you're a part of. So we gather to anticipate together. All of this adds up to church being something that God gives us to do for our good and for his glory, not just for ourselves, but for all of us together to increasingly find what we need most from Jesus, to lay our eyes on him and to anticipate his return. So does the Bible say that you must go to church? Yes, it does. Why does the Bible say you must go to church? Well, we just saw for your own good and for all of our goods. But still, we have to deal with a whole host of objections, very common questions that get raised. What about my reasons for not going to church? And as a pastor, I can promise you, they are many. Now, on the front end, especially as we've been studying Luke's gospel and seeing so much warning that Jesus gives religious people about legalism, I have to give a few shepherding caveats here. Three of them to be specific. First, we should absolutely never treat church attendance as if it alone saves anybody. Uh, You can do nothing to earn forgiveness before God, nor can you even earn the blessings that you receive as a Christian. All of those are on the basis of Christ's perfect life lived. So, church attendance, while it's commanded, and while disobedience is always a sin, Church attendance doesn't save anyone. We need to be clear about that. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, please hear me loud and clear on this. No matter how many times you come to a church gathering like this one, it will never make you right with God. Now, what you need to do is repent of your sins and trust that when Jesus died on the cross, that he could save you from the penalty your sins deserve. Put your faith in him and find all you need before God. Now, on the other hand, for those of us who are Christians and do come to church, we need to recognize also a second thing, that while it is a command in scripture to gather together to be a part of a local church, each and every Sunday, we're able to, when we fail to do that, it is not the most grievous or the unpardonable sin. Uh, Don't treat this like the mark of the beast or blasphemy of the spirit If you pay close attention to the way the Bible talks about sin, yes, it's true, even the smallest sin is enough to condemn us before God. And yet, in the law, there were different weights and consequences for sins. Certain sins had uh, harsher punishments. And it's not wrong to recognize that failing to gather together is different than adultery or murder, it still has consequences, it still is a sin. And yet it's not the most grievous sin. Uh, That's one of the other marks of legalism, blowing things out of the proportion God put them in. Let's remember that. Third, before we jump down anyone's neck about missing a Sunday, also we must remember that there are a lengthy list of legitimate reasons why people cannot gather together on a particular Sunday. Uh, Theologians call these providential hindrances. A providential hindrance is just a way of saying God has ordered the circumstances of your life in such a way that though you wish to do something, you are unable to because God made it not happen. Uh, if you want an example, somewhere in scripture that teaches this, this would be James chapter four, verses 13 through 17. Uh, I invite you this afternoon, take some time and read through it in full. I'll summarize it for you now. It's some people that want to take a business trip. It's not wrong to make a business trip or to plan how a business trip is going to go. Uh, but the passage teaches that no matter how well laid our plans, we have to leave open the possibility that God might change our agendas. He might cancel the trip altogether. And we need to be open to the fact that the Lord's will might be different than our own. Now that can happen on a business trip. It can also happen for your desire to obey the command to come and gather together with God's people. Uh, What are some examples of providential hindrances that might keep you away from church? Um, War would be one. I read an account of one church during World War II. Uh, It was in a city that was being firebombed and they held a deacons meeting and debated whether they should cancel services and absolve people of their duty to come to church if they were being firebombed at that moment. Uh, I'm thankful that the deacon side that said they should not go to church in those circumstances won, but it was a close vote just to show you how serious they were about it. Um, There are times where wars, famines, social upheaval is so thick, so difficult, that it's impossible for someone to go to church. That's not a sin when it happens. You can do the same thing with weather. Uh, if If there's enough snow, no one's going anywhere. Or as just as happened uh, this last weekend, it's powerful storms that knock down trees and might even damage church buildings. It's no sin if you can't go to church because God providentially made, made uh, the damage so severe that you can't go. Other reasons why, caregiving for others. Um, maybe you're dea- caring for an aged parent and they can't be left alone. Or maybe you have a, a newborn baby. And they need round-the-clock care. They can't be in public yet. That's not a sin to not come to church because you're caring for someone else. Uh, The same thing for certain vocations and jobs. Um, When Jesus talked with soldiers back in his day, he didn't tell them they had to stop being soldiers to be his disciples. Uh, If they were called off to war, there's no way they're going to show up to church on Sunday. Uh, There's a whole... Whole list of vocations with the same sorts of things that happens: airline pilots and doctors and ERs and uh, safety inspectors at nuclear sites. Uh, It's not a sin to be called into a line of work that requires you to be away from church. Now that doesn't mean it's not a difficulty or even a trial. Uh, But we shouldn't assume it's sinful just because someone's work keeps them away. Uh, Certainly, missionaries experience this regularly as well. Uh, A lot of times they can't go to church because there's none in the area where they are. Or because they're out ministering at a particular time when the gospel has more impact. Other reasons why illness of yourself, physical hardship. Uh, I make more visits to people that are uh, in this category than most people do. And uh, it's a really, it's a real thing, and it's a true hardship when your body just won't let you get up and get dressed and get to church. Now that person is not sinning as much as they want to be there. Uh, we need to remember them, and as much as we're able, to go to them. Uh, but that's just the Lord's providential ordering of their life, preventing them from being there. Uh, the COVID-19 pandemic gave a, a very writ large sort of pass on this when it came to illness. Uh, for a long time, it wasn't clear whether it was safe for certain people to gather or not. Uh, similarly, I think you could say travel requirements. There are times you got to get it from point A to point B. And it's just not possible for those uh, arrangements to flex enough for you to be at church, either where you're leaving from or where you're going. Now, in all of those, the important thing is it's not our preferences that leads to them. It's not us doing it. It's God doing it. But when God does it, we are not to feel guilty and we are certainly not to condemn others. Uh, Because as the Lord wills, our lives go very differently than we would plan them. Now, there's a lot of gray in that. So I found a really helpful rule of thumb this week in an article I was reading. It's if you're wondering if something's a providential hindrance or not, ask yourself, would this fly as an excuse for me showing up to work or school? Generally, that gets you in the ballpark at least. Um, In all of this, we know that the Lord knows our hearts, but let's not assume that something is a sin until we know it is. Okay, now I'm going to give a list of uh, specific scenarios people sometimes use as uh, reasons why they don't come to church and my responses to them. First, I prefer to worship over a live stream. My couch is more comfortable, my coffee's nicer than your coffee. You know, all sorts of different reasons, right? And we as a church, we didn't have a live stream before the pandemic, so this is a new thing for us. But realize that live stream is not the same thing as gathering together, and here's why. Because it forces you to be a spectator, not a participant. Uh, You cannot stir one another up to love and good works sitting at home. It's just not possible. Uh, Which means that you might do yourself some spiritual good. I hope our live stream does that. But you can't fulfill the command to meet together and encourage each other and stir each other up the way God intended for us to do in our gatherings. So, live stream, think of it as a stopgap. Think of it as the best of poor options if you are providentially hindered from being here. Don't think of it as a substitute for being a church. Uh, just an example that I uh, might think imagine a, a couple. And the wife says to the husband, I want us to spend some quality time together. I feel like we're growing distant. Why don't we go out for a date night tonight? And the husband says, you know what? You're right. We should spend time together. I'll meet you on Zoom at seven o'clock in the evening sharp. (laughs) There's something lost in the translation. You know what I mean? Okay. Second reason, I go to a small group or I go to a midweek Bible study Or I get together with Christian friends. Or I go to a chapel service at my Christian university. So I don't need to go to church. Now again, I think all those things can be beneficial. And I hope that you are availing yourselves of them if you can. But none of them are the institution that Jesus founded and commanded us to be a part of. The local gathering of a church. Now, why is that? I say that. It's because... Historically, there's been an agreement between theologians on three things needed for something to be a true church. That is the true teaching of the word of God. That is uh, observing the ordinances or the sacraments. That's the Lord's table and baptism, the things Jesus commanded us to do together. And third, the exercise of discipline. You might say holding each other accountable to living a Christian life. Now, there's a lot of variety in the ways that churches faithfully do that. Everything from a tiny house church in China with four members uh, to a mega church that has multi-sites all over the place. If they do those three things, it is a church. But if they don't do those three things, then they are not a church, uh, in my experience, when I drill down into the details, at least one or more of those is missing in every case. And if you really feel strongly enough that your group of Christian friends should be your place for church gathering, then you need to find a way to make sure it hits those three marks. Raise up a teacher, start taking the Lord's table and baptizing, and uh, start doing some sort of church discipline. Third, I won't come because I need to catch up on my sleep. Now it's true, there are some medical conditions that require people to have extra sleep. And there are some seasons, especially if you have young kids in the house, where sleep can be a really tough commodity to get. I'm I'm sympathetic toward that. And there might be times where it's so acute, where it would be a providential hindrance because you just can't stay awake. Um, But let's put it in perspective for all the rest of the times. Uh, We're... Essentially saying we're not willing to miss out on a few hours of shut-eye. When the original people who were hearing this command, they were being told to come to church even if it meant getting punched in the eye. Uh, Jesus has already told us it's going to cost us something to be disciples. And that might mean a few hours of sleep on one of our days on the weekend. Now, might I suggest that you could find ways to rearrange your schedule so that you could sleep more other days? Or even... I highly recommend to you the much neglected post-church nap. Fourth, I've got too many other things I like to do on Sunday. Uh, My kids have sports leagues they're in. I like to clean up around the house. I like to spend time with my friends. Now, it's true that all those things are good. I'm glad you enjoy doing them. But you have to ask yourself, what are you willing to give up to be obedient to Christ? Jesus told you, you need to gather together. Are you really saying, well, just because I kind of want to, it's good enough reason to disregard that command? And think about the example you're setting for others, uh, parents. Think about the message you're sending to your kids if you're consistently showing them that sports is more important than gathering together. Or think about what you're communicating to your other church members when they think that cleaning up the house is more important than coming to the household of God. Uh, let's take seriously the call to be a part of the family of God in our gatherings, knowing that it will cost us something, but we'll be blessed in our doing by Jesus. Then finally, in some ways the hardest of them, I won't come because I've been hurt by the church. Now this is not the hardest in that it's the most complicated theologically, but because it is the most raw, oftentimes, you have to be the most careful with it. Uh, People mean different things when they say that. So please listen quickly, speak slowly. Try to understand what's happening before you say anything. Now, in the case when it is a relatively minor relational rift that's opened up, you know, someone said something they shouldn't or didn't invite someone to something. Now, if that's the type of hurt we're talking about, then we need to take Jesus' other words about reconciling seriously And that means going and possibly confronting someone, forgiving, and then being brought back together in fellowship. Now, if it's minor, that's what you do. But sometimes it's not minor. Sometimes it's major. Sometimes it's even sinful unwillingness to repent by a whole church or leadership of a church. If someone's been wounded like that, well, they probably shouldn't be encouraged to, be, to go back to the place that they have been so harmed. That might be a reason that they need to go find another church. And maybe gently you can go help them to do that. Now, in other cases, while what's happening is being perceived as hurt, it might well be that what they're feeling instead is conviction. Uh, sometimes we don't like something that the Bible tells us we must do. And once someone faithfully preaches the Bible or tells us somewhere in the Bible where it says that thing, uh, we find ourselves uncomfortable as a result. Now, in those cases, what we need more than anything is to not run away from church, but to be present in it so that we can sit under the word of God and recalibrate our hearts around it. Uh, Last thing we need is to abandon church and allow the enemy to use our own desires to rewrite what it means to be a Christian. Now, in all these cases, notice I did not have any category there where it's right or good for someone to stop going to church altogether. Um, I have not, I don't have a single verse in the Bible that gives me warrant to be able to say that's okay. Um, now, if there's one thing that I would like for you to take from this part of the sermon, it's this. We should not feel free to encourage someone or give someone permission to disobey something that scripture clearly teaches. Uh, We don't have the right to edit or to remove anything from God's word. Now, it could be that you'll have an opportunity to walk alongside someone and help them to obey a command. It could be you don't have that sort of relationship. You can't say anything. But one thing you must not do is encourage them to go further in their disobedience. All right. um, What about all my reasons for not going to church? That was my list. I'm sure there are more, but those are the ones I hear most often. So fourth and finally, what does this mean for our church? This will be much briefer than the other sections. What does it mean for our church? First, let's buck the trend and be a people that joyfully gather together each and every Sunday where we are able, as far as it depends on us. Uh, maybe you're here this morning and you haven't been to church in a long time. Uh, please know you are welcome here. We are so glad you're here. Uh, there's not condemnation in the body of Christ. And if you have been neg- negligent in this command up until now, just know that Jesus has already died for that sin as well. And he is eager to restore you to fellowship and to the joy of regularly gathering with God's people. You're welcome here. We want you here. Uh, Let's recognize also that each of us, even if we're in the habit of coming regularly to church, that we need to make sure that we don't lose sight of this particular command for our own good and for the good of others as well. As far as we're able, let's prioritize gathering together, whether it's our church here or whether you're visiting another church wherever you are. Uh, But don't neglect the gathering. We're warned not to do that very thing. Second, When you do show up to church, do so as a participant, not a spectator. Show up with a well-considered plan. How are you going to encourage the people around you? Can you hang out five minutes after the service so you can have an extra conversation? Could you show up early so that you could help set up or serve in some ministry capacity? Might the Lord lead you to pray for someone? Or to open up about something you're struggling with so they could pray for you? Come to church with the expectation that Jesus wants to use you and you'll find great joy as you do. Third, help others to gather together as well. Now this gets tricky. Um, Certainly if someone's a church member, uh, we have already invited each other to speak into each other's lives when we notice something is off. And that means if one of us starts neglecting gathering together, we should lovingly and winsomely and gently come alongside them and ask, hey, brother, what's the deal? Why haven't I seen you at church in a while? Now, don't jump down their throat. Don't assume you know what's going on. But love them enough to ask a probing question and then be ready to go over these very verses if necessary to make sure they understand it's not just for them. It's for all of us. If Jesus said it, then we need to believe it and we need to obey it. Realize also that as far as we're able with others outside of our church, if if they call themselves Christians, then we might be in a situation where we might need to bring this word of encouragement as well. Now, it's tricky when it's a family member or maybe someone you don't know as well, but ask yourself, how might I encourage them to obey Christ in this command? Uh, Maybe the easiest thing you can do is just invite them to come to church with you one particular Sunday. See if you can have a conversation after they already come with you. Um, Regardless of what it is, we we certainly can't fall into the trap of giving people permission to do something that scripture does not give them permission to do. Now of all this, let's realize we live in a moment where this is countercultural. People love to love Jesus, but not his church. And increasingly, people are skeptical of organizations and institutions like local churches. But we need to trust Jesus when he tells us to gather together, that it's not an extra, but it's essential to having a healthy relationship with him. Uh, we sang that song, Oh, How Good It Is, Want to end with thinking about one of the other stanzas in it. Oh, how good it is to embrace his command, to prefer one another, forgive as he forgives. When we live as one. We all share in the love of the Son with the Father and the Spirit. Amen. Jesus, help us to live this out. Would you join me in prayer? Jesus, we remember how on Palm Sunday, you entered into the city that would crucify you. How you set off the series of events that would lead to your own death And how you did it out of love for your people. Uh, To gather together a community of the redeemed, purchased by your blood, raised to life by your resurrection, given the gift of your Holy Spirit. Uh, Jesus, we know that we are not worthy of such things. And yet you gave us this reminder when you sat with your disciples and you instituted the Lord's Supper. Uh, when you gave them this ordinance to keep, to remember the great price that was paid to bring us together and to save each and every one of us. So Jesus, now as we come to the table, we pray that you would help us, uh, that we would not be here as spectators, but participants and your body that's broken and your blood that's shed, uh, that we would truly be the body of Christ, uh, the family of God, the spiritual house built for worship to you. Uh, Jesus, we remember even this week the ways that we have fallen short of your glory, uh, the ways we have left undone, the commands, even ones weightier than the call to gather together, and how we have violated the commands not to do things that you have very expressly and intentionally told us never to do. Uh, Jesus, we repent And we ask your forgiveness now, not on the basis of our merit, but on your shed blood. Uh, Thank you for forgiving us, Jesus. Uh, Would you now unite us by your spirit and even fill us with joy as we do this together? We do this in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, uh, what we're about to do is not magic uh, the symbols will be passing by, it will do you no spiritual good if you'll take them. So please just let them pass by. Uh, what you need instead is to receive the one these symbols are about, that's Jesus. All you have to do is believe that Jesus died on the cross for sinners like you, and that he rose from the dead so you could be forgiven. You just need to repent of your sins and trust him. And if you do, uh, you'll be welcomed into the family of God. For all the rest of us here, if you are a true Christian who's put your faith in Jesus and repented of your sins, you are welcome to this table. Uh, as you come, you're given a visible reminder that Jesus died to save us into a people for himself. Uh, so please hang on to the elements as they're passed by so we can take them together as a sign of our unity. And as you hold on to those elements, and as you reflect on what Jesus did... Uh, Would you remember the great joy and even the anticipation we have of one day together being with our Savior and seeing him face to face? Jesus, we thank you for your body broken and your blood shed. Help us to do this in your grace, we pray. Amen.